CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond with your host, NLW. The Breakdown is distributed by Coindesk. Welcome back to The Breakdown. It is Monday, March 9th, and it is a Black Monday. Yesterday, I got the dreaded blockfolio, Bitcoin is down 3% in the last hour text, and it has just gone worse and worse and worse from there. We're experiencing right now a huge confluence of problematic events. The markets are catching up to themselves with regards to coronavirus and the potential dislocations from everything being closed, people stopping travel, all, all of these sort of second and third order effects are coming home to roost a little bit, while at the same time, we're also seeing other challenges like a global oil price war that ignited last night. Now, one of the things that I love about crypto and Bitcoin is that it attracts people from all walks of life and background, right? Not everyone in this space was in you know, traditional markets before. Because of that, however, when there are these large-scale global macro events that have an impact on the price of Bitcoin, that have an impact on actions in our industry, it can be hard to figure out exactly what's going on and where you should go to get information. So to help with that, I've brought on Kevin Kelly from Delphi Digital. Delphi are one of the best research houses in the crypto space. Kevin has a background in traditional markets. And basically what we do for the next half hour is like a primer, effectively, on everything that's going on, right? So we talk about the difference between stock markets and bond markets and what bond markets have been telling us that stock markets seem to finally be agreeing with. We talk about the safe haven narrative and what we might expect from different types of safe havens and why gold even isn't performing as well as you might think because we treat safe havens so monolithically. We talk about what other signals we should be watching for over the coming days to better understand what's likely to transpire. Hopefully this interview is a helpful, useful primer for you on what is a fast-moving, fast-evolving situation. Two quick notes before we get into the interview. The first is that this interview has been very lightly edited. I like having the feel and flow of the conversation more natural. So uh, hear that if you hear the ums or the, you know, whatever the pauses, it's because we're doing a much lighter edit. And secondly, I need to be very clear that nothing in this podcast should be taken as financial advice. These represent the opinions of myself and our guest only and should not be used as the basis for any financial decision. 
All right, that out of the way, let's dive into this interview. All right, I am here with Kevin Kelly. Kevin, thank you so much for joining today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, so we were originally going to do this podcast on Friday, and then we were like, you know what, this it seems like we maybe want to wait and uh, and see what actually happens. And I'm glad we did. A lot has taken place over the last well, 24 hours, I guess. Yeah, I'm glad we waited too. It's kind of funny we uh, we initially pushed it back because of volatility, and now we've seen even you know more volatility creep into markets. So no, definitely, definitely very timely for sure. So I guess what I want to do is, um, is, is basically there are so many, there's such a confluence of events happening mm -hmm. right now. Right. And, uh, and I think there are plenty of people in the crypto industry who have, you know, background and experience in, in, uh, you know, other traditional markets. Uh, you obviously have, have experience, uh, in, in other parts or other sectors. Um, but there also are a lot of people who are really just trying to make sense of all this stuff, right? You know, crypto doesn't always react to, uh, to, to, global uh global challenges but it, it is certainly reacting now so i guess let's start on a high level what have we been seeing in the last couple weeks uh in the markets because obviously you know for a long time there was no reaction to coronavirus and then mm -hmm. it seems to have all hit yeah no absolutely so so if you kind of rewind the clock back to you know let's say the beginning of this year beginning of 2020 i mean we were just coming off of 2019 is what we deemed as something you know i, I consider the everything rally where you had this kind of pivot among global central banks led by the federal reserve and jerome powell and co and basically you know pivoting back towards more accommodative monetary policy and what that did was really ignited, you know, asset prices across the board, whether it was stocks, you know, you had the S&P 500 up, you know, 30% last year, you had uh, treasury bonds, right, which typically, you know, people look at as, as diversifiers, those were up, you know, double digits, gold was up double digits. Um, so you really kind of you looked across asset classes, you know, it's kind of why we deemed it the everything rallies, because everything was pretty much up, right, you could have thrown a dart at, at a dartboard of, of different asset classes, and you probably would have made money. And so the beginning of this year started off, you know, somewhat similar in that you did have, you know, a, a rally, still a rally in risk assets. And as you started to see coronavirus news start to break, right, initially, obviously, in China, and then um, there was certainly some some discrepancy or some questions uh, around, uh, or people being skeptical around what was what was actually being released. And as people started to kind of uh, put two and two together and really understand the magnitude of this, you kind of saw, as you mentioned, a big kind of confluence of, of, of incidents that really led to, you know, I think where we are today. And, and to your point earlier, you know, we saw a pretty big divergence in the weeks leading up to, you know, the, the stock market's peak right there on February 19th, um, where you had the stock market saying one thing, you had the bond market saying something else. And so what we've seen now is that obviously risk assets like stocks have certainly caught up to the severity and the the uh, the, the, the the bond market narrative that what the bond market was trying to tell people. Um, but I think you know it's largely a, a factor of what you think um, expectations are going forward, right? And for a while there, you saw stocks again continue to climb even as bonds are rallying and yields were falling because I think people weren't taking you know uh, uh, the coronavirus outbreak threat as seriously as they as they probably should have, and it was very. It's very difficult to really assess the economic impact of something like this because it's one of those unique events where you're, you're hitting both, you know, kind of aggregate supply and demand at the same time, right? So there's so many different variables and and and, uh, and parameters you're trying to understand, you're trying to get a good picture of. And again, you know, when it comes to something like this and you're getting, you know, different uh, – uh, media outlets with different types of news coming out, and one's a little bit more optimistic, one's more pessimistic. Um, I think it was it was tough for the market to really kind of you know disseminate that, and then finally. 
as things really started to escalate and it, it became almost impossible to ignore, you know, the potential effects of this and the severity of it. Um, that's when you really kind of saw, you know, equity investors uh, crater a bit to, to uh, what the bond market had been telling them, you know, for, for weeks, weeks at that point. Okay. So I want to, I want to touch on uh, something important that you're kind of bringing up in passing, but I think it's worth maybe focusing on, right? Most of our uh, coverage of the economy looks at just kind of the top line stock market numbers as the main indicator, right? Uh, but obviously the economies are much more complex than that. Um, so what are, what are the different markets that are relevant for people to be paying attention to and how have, how, you know, you, you're kind of saying that they maybe have been telling different stories over the last couple of weeks. Um, what have you been seeing? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. And different markets are going to react, um, you know, oftentimes in real time, but, but to different uh to different extents to certain macro events, right? And so when you look at the bond market, for example, I keep bringing it up. And when I, when I mention a bond market, I mean, <clears throat> right now what I'm talking about is U.S. Treasuries, right? Those are those are highly regarded as, you know, kind of the safest asset that's out there, even, you know, safer than gold. And we can get into why, you know, gold hasn't um, really kind of exploded higher as well on some of this news, um, because this is more of a, a bit of a liquidity event and a real kind of near-term shock that you would actually not expect uh, something like gold, like a hard scarce asset to actually perform well. Well, in, uh, but I can get into that in a minute. But when I'm talking about the bond market and, and treasuries, you know, that's that's oftentimes viewed as kind of like the purest play on what you think or what the market thinks uh, the economic outlook is going to be going forward. And so when you see, um, you know, treasury yields, which move inversely with prices, so when I say, you know, treasury yields are falling, that basically means that um, treasury bonds, the prices themselves are, are rallying, right? So if you're if you're holding treasuries, you're in treasuries, you're making money. The reason why, you know, we've seen uh, uh, such drastic moves and, and such downward pressure on uh, the U.S. Uh, treasury uh, treasury yield is because, for one, again, the safe haven kind of flight to safety risk, where people aren't necessarily sure how severe this is going to get, what the economic fallout is going to be. Again, it's it, it's a perfect kind of safe haven to go to um, to try and wait out the storm, I guess you could say. Uh, but the flip side of that is that the longer dated treasuries, so the ones that have longer maturities, typically respond more to um, inflation expectations and, and kind of what the economic growth outlook is. And so you've got this, again, perfect storm of you know something like coronavirus that hits cause a lot of uncertainty people flood into treasuries just because that's 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 a that's an asset allocation or rebalancing type strategy and at the same time you've also got you know expectations for economic growth falling which which in turn has pushed inflation expectations longer term down which again kind of pushes more pressure on uh, bond yields because inflation when inflation is expected to rise or, or is relatively high um, that actually is is kind of one of uh, one of uh, bond investors kind of worst nightmares right it's 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 their worst enemy. And so you've got, again, you know, a confluence of factors that are really kind of pushing yields um, to, to unprecedented levels, literally record low levels. You've got the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield that broke below, you know, 50 basis points, um, you know, overnight here. And what I think is is also important is is at this point at this juncture it's really critical. Um, one, I mean, if you're an investor and you just have kind of an average portfolio, you know, not making any drastic or crazy changes, things like that, right? Because again, it's very very difficult to time markets, especially ones that are this volatile. But it's also a, a good time to take a step back, and this is something we're doing right now. You know, here at Delphi is. It's kind of reassessing what we think the economic outlook is and trying to understand what market consensus expectations are and what we think you know the potential uh, uh, fallout from this will be compared to market expectations. And it's not to say that 
the markets are necessarily um, completely pricing in some type of doomsday scenario, but they're certainly getting close when you look at, the, especially when you look at the bond market. And so that's why you've started to see, you know, stocks have, have cratered a bit. Um, they're down, you know, 18%, I think now as of, as of when uh, the market uh, reopened because we had a trading halt this morning because stocks so fell so much, uh, down 18% from their that February 19th high. I keep mentioning, um, so you're right within kind of what the media considers you know correction territory of that 20% um, 20 uh, 20% drawdown. And so again, there's there's a lot of different markets you can look at to to try and figure out what is going on. But the bond market is one of kind of the purest ways in which you can get an idea of what kind of market consensus is for or how bleak the outlook is you know among market participants. So th this is a, a good juncture, I guess. You know, it, it sounds like your answer is in part it's too early to know, but uh, but how how bleak is the market outlook right now um, as compared to uh, to what we're actually seeing? Like, is this a? I mean, obviously, this is just your opinion. Uh, and you know, disclaimer, financial advice, et cetera, et cetera. But is do you see this as um, the markets finally catching up with themselves and uh, and pricing in a lot of uncertainty, or do you see them pricing in an expectation of uh, of, of further problems and dislocations? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, and I think it's not to say that we can't see yields go lower. Um, and certainly, I mean, I think stocks, to your point about that catch up trade, I think stocks are now catching up to, again, what the bond market was saying and, and where uh, people are kind of repricing, you know, risk at this point because there is so much uncertainty surrounding this. Um, but when you when you do look at kind of the, the bond market, and you look at even the, the shorter end of the curve, um, what you're seeing too is, is expectations for, you know, a, a lot more accommodative and easier monetary policy, right? What I mean by that is you saw the Federal Reserve with an emergency um, rate cut to their benchmark rate by about 50 basis points last week. And initially, you know, you saw a bit of a reaction in stocks, a, a very small kind of bounce uh, within the first couple of minutes. And then you really saw the market continue to fall, right? And I think what, what last week's rate cut did, if anything, was confirmed to, you know, equity investors and market participants in general, um, what they had 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 didn't want to admit to themselves and that was that this was actually a real risk and something that you know the federal reserve was was now watching and monitoring um as a threat to you know economic activity and, and up until that point again you know every day we get new information and every day the severity of this becomes more and more clear to people um but again it, it's one of those things where uh, a lot of people have had obviously this has been an incredible bull run over the last you know 10 11 years in, in the u.s equity market um and so people you know didn't necessarily probably want to believe what the severity of this this potential impact could be and i think that's what the fed rate cut last week kind of signaled it was this emergency rate cut that took a lot of people by surprise i mean the, the market had been pricing in at least you know 50 basis points of, of rate cuts um, from the Fed at their March uh, FOMC meeting, which is set to take place um, next week. Um, but again, you know, the fact that the Fed couldn't wait two weeks to actually, you know, put that into place uh, certainly was a signaling effect. And now if you look at, you know, what the, the market's pricing in for, for future, um, you know, Fed policy, um, they're calling for another, you know, two, two, uh, two rate cuts or 50 base points worth of rate cuts, you know, by the, by the March meeting, by year end. Um, at this point, we've got, you know, a, a 
above a 33% chance of the Fed actually taking rates all the way to zero, right, which is what a lot of people have been calling for, for some time now. And so I think where where this gets into the uncertainty aspect, and it's tough to say what's priced in is, do you have the Fed, you know, if, if the economy dips in or roll, really rolls over, turns into a global recession, which you're already starting to see um, across a number of kind of advanced economies that are certainly standing on fragile ground, if the global economy and the US economy do, you know, dip into recession, the Fed's likely going to take rates to zero anyway, right? So, so the question right now is, do they get ahead of that, try and cut and, and really um, get ahead of doing whatever it is that they can do from a monetary policy standpoint to curb some of this? Uh, or do they wait it out, see how it actually uh, ends up taking effect, and then cutting rates to zero if we do see uh, you know, uh, economic conditions um, uh, uh, worsen, right? And, and there's obviously a debate on both sides of what, you know, you think they should do or what they will do. Um, but I personally sit in the camp, you know, that that the Fed will probably wait a little bit here. You'll get more color on the, the March FOMC meeting. Um, I mean, they could, if things continue, if stocks continue to, you know, crater this week, you could certainly see another emergency rate cut that's not out of the question. Um, but I think the Fed's in a very delicate position because the, the flip side of this entire argument, right, which again, it's, it's I, I view now as it's not the base case. It's definitely a lower risk uh, probability outcome. But let's say hypothetically, you know, things aren't not necessarily good, but not as bad as the market has started to price in. And we do see this as more um, shifting of the demand curve out a few quarters. And it's not something that really permanently pushes, uh, you know, the global economy into a recession. Well, the Fed, the risk the Fed faces if they cut rates to zero, right, and they start up, let's say even, you know, revamping a, a quantitative easing and asset purchases, if they start pumping that, that much stimulus into the economy, and it actually turns out to be more of a transitory event, well, then they're, they're, on, they're going to be on the hook on the flip side of potentially stimulating or igniting, uh, you know, uh, consumer inflation and things of like that, and, and almost pumping stimulus into a market that doesn't necessarily need it right now. So the, the risk is um, to the downside in terms of you know what inflation expectations could pick up. That obviously would would hit um, you know treasury uh, treasury bonds that I've talked about have done really well recently, and a lot of people have a lot of exposure to, especially uh, older retirees. And so again, the, the Fed sits between this rock and a hard place that they're often found in, um, because again, there's 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 two sides to, to every argument. And there's uh, certainly some trade-off effects or, or, or potential consequences that they have to weigh when they make these types of decisions. Lots going on. Uh, let's add more to the mix. Uh, oil. So uh, obviously, this is a, a another shock uh, to the system. Um, how do you think that's playing into the market's reaction this morning? Is it just w one more thing? Is it, or is it more significant than that? Yeah, it's certainly coming at a, at a at a pretty poor time, right? Just based on everything we were just talking about, especially as uh, you know, coronavirus concerns um, escalate again, you know, day by day. Throwing oil into the mix, it's kind of like adding fuel, you know, to this proverbial um, dumpster fire that's become markets. Because you know, on one hand. You can make the argument that lower oil prices aren't necessarily bad, depending on you know what what stakeholder you're looking at, right? For let's say the U.S. consumer, you know, if gas prices end up falling, obviously that can be that can be a bit of a windfall at a time when you know um, a lot of people may be coming under pressure. The flip side, and I think this is where the market's more so sitting, is you know you have this thirty percent. Uh, decline in oil overnight. I'm looking at oil prices right now. I mean, crude's hovering around $34 a barrel, which is which is very low um, compared to you know where we've been for for most of this cycle. Um, and what I think that's that that's 
the market's starting to price into is kind of the downstream effects of um, oil at these levels, right? And 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 I talked a little bit about um, you know what could tip you know potentially having coronavirus be the catalyst to tip us into a recession. And what I look at uh, and what I'm really focused on is more so kind of the the financial and credit conditions um, that exist today. And so what I mean by that is when you look at kind of a, a debt-based economy like the U.S., it's, it's heavily reliant on credit, the ability for you know companies, individuals to be able to gain access to cheap credit. And so what you're starting to see is the high yield uh, uh, corporate debt market is um, made up of, it has a significant portion made up of, of energy and oil and gas companies, right, that are issuing um, corporate debt that, that's, that's rated, you know, high yield or, or junk, um, as a lot of people like to refer to it. And so if you have oil prices at this level, obviously it cuts into profit revenues, profitability, cash flow for some of these companies that are already pretty strapped with debt that can start to cause some real kind of funding and credit uh, dislocations within the high yield market, which again can have, you know, these kind of downstream and direct effects on the rest of um, um, the economy because if credit conditions tighten, oftentimes credit conditions will tighten, they'll tighten quickly and they'll tighten, you know, all the way across the board. And so now everyone from your small to medium sized enterprises or businesses, you know, are having a, a more difficult time where it's more expensive for them to borrow to fund short term needs. The funding markets potentially can can dry up in terms of liquidity. And again, these downstream effects can really, really affect um, companies that are not necessarily even directly tied to oil prices um, or, or uh, are these kind of big behemoths that are sitting in, you know, the S&P 500. So, Again, it's it's tough to say exactly where the market's going to shake out right here. And again, you know, this this drop in the S and P five hundred, for example, could be something where you know you have these trading halts in place specifically because oftentimes panic selling begets more panic selling, and you and you'd like to think that cooler heads will prevail and somebody will come in and market participants will come in, digest the information, have more time to digest it, and start to make uh, uh, more informed decisions that aren't just hitting the panic sell button because they're trying to get out at the same time everyone else is trying to get out. But you know the, the the shock in oil prices, and again, what the geopolitical potential implications are um, of this kind of oil price war that's now starting to take place, um, certainly weighing on markets at a time like we like we've been talking about. I mean, could not be you know a less ideal time for this to happen. Okay, so let's let's shift a little and talk uh, safe havens. Um, so you mentioned uh, treasuries and you mentioned gold. Um, so I guess first is what's happening with gold, and then maybe you can expand a little bit on uh, on your kind of point about what we would expect to see gold mm -hmm. do in this type of scenario. Yeah, so so gold obviously you know falls in that safe haven bucket over over the longer term, right? Right there with treasuries, um, it's it's a little bit different in terms that it's it's not you know a, a, a necessarily a cash flow producing um, or income producing asset, right? Like treasuries, you you um, clip a coupon, or you you get a a, um, a cash flow right from actually holding the treasuries themselves. You, you you capture that yield, whereas gold is more looked at as kind of like a portfolio hedge. Um, against especially, you know, central bank uh, uh, policies or monetary policies, what a lot of people will watch for. They'll look at things like real yields um, and, and and make that type of comparison. But the point I wanted to make about gold versus treasuries as a safe haven is that during times like this, and you actually you actually saw this um, not to this extent 
Um, but you saw something similar in terms of the uh, two, uh, in 2008, where gold initially actually you know dropped by about 30% between I think it was March 2008 to October that year, um, as uh, volatility started to pick up and as you started to see stocks uh, you know roll over and essentially fall off a cliff, because it was more of a liquidity type event, not necessarily um, people just you know rebalancing it to gold because they thought economic conditions were deteriorating, and so in situations like this, and we've started to see it you know, within the last uh, couple of weeks in that, you know, gold initially rallied, but then gold sold off a bit. And really the only thing that's, that's been, uh, that's been uh, surging higher has been, you know, long dated, you know, US treasuries. I think a lot of that is because people are essentially trying to sell whatever it is that they have, right? And gold's actually a, a relatively liquid market compared to a lot of other assets and asset classes. And so in a situation like this, again, you know, having position in gold to fight, you know, the the broad-based uh, risk of currency devaluation, all these things we talk about with central bank policy and rate cuts over the long term certainly makes sense. But in these short-term kind of windows, you know, it, it's also subject to um, these liquidity events where people are, again, trying to sell whatever it is that they can. And so I think that's why you've seen gold still, you know, fail to break above, you know, 1700, um, you know, up until really, I mean, this week, and we'll see how this week continues to play out. But it's a little bit more of kind of a liquidity event where everyone's, you know, selling pretty much everything they can get their hands on to get into something like U.S. Treasuries, which, again, is kind of the gold standard um, of, you know, the safe haven assets out there. This is so the the point I think that is very basic but also incredibly important and is missed a lot in the um the Bitcoin narrative conversation that we have on crypto Twitter is that uh it's not like there's just one monolithic thing called you know safe havens right mm -hmm. that there are uh that that time frame matters that context uh matters right um so I guess with that uh how do you see the state of the uh the bitcoin narrative uh in this context right i mean i think for for the last two weeks that's what everyone has been discussing you know two weeks ago when the markets first started to react or at least the stock market rather finally started to react to corona bitcoin was moving in total lockstep last week it seemed like it was trying to reclaim its uncorrelated crowd and it you know it, it hung real tight for a while but then obviously it took a total dump over the weekend that just seems to be continuing yeah, no, I mean, it's a great question. Obviously, something you know, we focus a lot of our time on, too. And, and you know, certainly fall long term into, into the, the camp that, you know, Bitcoin will find its way into more of that kind of safe haven um, bucket alongside something like gold, again, longer term, right? But in order for it to get there, I mean, it has to accrue trillions of dollars worth of value because, because again, that'll suppress volatility and it'll allow, you know, a more institutional crowd to come in. And, and once you have this market be a bit more institutionalized, that's when you would expect it to trade more in lockstep with some of these other safe havens, right? And I think that's that's one of the big reasons why, you know, uh, Bitcoin goes back and forth and it, it is uncorrelated, you know, for the most part over the longer term to any asset class, including both, you know, your safe havens and, you know, your risk assets is because the incremental buyer of, you just think about, you know, at a basic level, the incremental buyer or seller of Bitcoin versus gold, for example, it's still very, very different, right? We talk all the time about how this market's much more retail driven. And yes, we are starting to see institutions come in and more sophisticated investors come into the, the Bitcoin and crypto markets. Um, but again, you know, the, the, the gold market is much, much more institutionalized and you would expect to react more so in real time to some of these events. What I think is going on too is that, again, still a nascent technology, 
you know, the track record isn't, you know, close to what gold or, or treasuries is. And so this this idea that in these types of times, especially when you have really, really, you know, quick spikes in volatility, you know, a liquidity event that I've been referring to, you know, it's tough to see Bitcoin catching a bid or, or performing well in that because, again, the narrative is not quite, it's not quite big enough of a market and the narrative is not quite there yet on a global scale um, to really solidify it, 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 it's, uh, its use case in something like a scenario like this as a safe haven. Um, and I think it's suffering again from kind of the way in which uh, people are viewing it in terms of a risk asset versus or further out the risk curve, I should say, um, than something like a treasury or, or gold, right? I don't necessarily think the macro narrative for Bitcoin as that long-term safe haven or, or um, uncorrelated kind of hedge on everything, um, really on everything going awry, which is what we're starting to see. I don't think that's necessarily dead yet. Um, I, for one, to be honest, would have expected... I wouldn't have expected Bitcoin to be below 8,000, uh, given where we were even, you know, two or three weeks ago and, and what's developed. Um, so it's, it's, it has been a bit surprising to me. Um, but at the same time, I don't think it necessarily kills the narrative because, again, if you look at something like gold and, and you watch the way in which it's reacted so far, you would expect gold to be up higher as well if it was more of a kind of slow moving deterioration of events. And it wasn't these kind of quick volatility spikes, which historically, you know, if you look over Bitcoin's limited track record, but really the cycle. Anytime you've seen really big spikes in equity market volatility and expectations for market volatility, Bitcoin has, has failed to perform well, right? Usually it sells off of stocks because, again, you know, it, it's not that gold standard, you know, US Treasury type of safe haven asset are viewed like that for, for, for the most part um, quite yet, right? So again, not necessarily in the macro narrative is dead, but it is certainly in a very interesting place right now because again, you'd expect Bitcoin and, and that's not to say that Bitcoin, this isn't you know an attractive you know entry price point for certain institutions that are now looking at this and saying, digesting all the information, digesting you know how potentially bad things could get from a global macro and, and economic standpoint and saying, this might be a good a good point for us to allocate a little bit to Bitcoin because again, it is that you know potential ultimate hedge on things really really going awry and you really starting to see both fiscal and monetary stimulus you know ramp up. So it's an interesting position. Certainly, wouldn't expect it to be here yet, uh, but I don't think that that macro narrative is is dead necessarily. Yeah, I mean, I think your point to to dramatically simplify it is that when things happen this fast, people sell whatever they can sell to be able to move into the safest possible thing, you yep, know, exactly. so it, 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 which, yeah, so I think that's really interesting and a, a really important point. What do you make, if anything, of the, <laughs> the, the almost, it seems to me, at least wishful thinking narrative that this is just a plus token scale and are selling off? Yeah, I mean, there's again, there's there's probably certainly a bit of credibility to the argument. Um, this is also, I mean, you, you, what's something that we track pretty often is um, looking at obviously the amount of leverage is being used, and again, it, it's still a bit of a trader's market. Um, so again, to the to the average kind of Bitcoiner out there or person who's even just put it into their investment portfolio because again they wanted you know diverse uh, to diversify a bit, um, you know certainly not not anything we um, you know pay a, a ton of attention to. If anything, it's more so what do you think the longer term outlook is? If you it, it all depends on your time horizon, right? If you're looking out the next two weeks, you know to be honest with you, anybody who says they know where Bitcoin's going to be in the next two weeks um, is probably lying to you. But if you look out, you know a year three years, five years, 10 years, you know, we can certainly give you a, a pretty, pretty good argument, especially at these levels um, to be bullish, you know, on something, something like Bitcoin, just again, because of even from a macro perspective, you know, what, what it presents and you're starting to see, it's important to note, you're starting to see a lot of the more kind of global macro 
uh, focused uh, uh, individuals, traders, uh, uh, fund managers start to actually wake up to the potential of Bitcoin and, and you see them now advocating for it, you know, on 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 uh, on FinTwit and crypto Twitter and things like that. So the narrative is certainly growing for Bitcoin, especially in kind of a global macro sense. Uh, but again, you know, tra- trying to trade this market and then looking at, you know, different factors that potentially could be applying, you know, selling or, or, or immediate buying pressure. Um, you know, again, you, you could cr- probably craft at least five or six different narratives. If you ask five or six different people why Bitcoin's at this level, you'll probably get five or six different answers. I couldn't agree more. Um, okay, I won't ask you for predictions uh, because I think that's kind of would be insane right now. But I will ask this to wrap up. What are you watching over the next couple of days? What do you think are the important uh, signals, or, or maybe just what do you think that the market is waiting for? Yeah, I mean, I think just ge- general markets right now. Um, what I'm watching pretty closely is, is financial and credit conditions. I think what you what you're starting to see, and you had the the Fed actually come out um, and and uh, uh, tell the market that they're going to be increasing the amount um, that they're they're uh, willing to 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 repurchase the, the whole repo um, intervention that's been going on. They've actually increased those limits because again, you're starting to see some pressure in the funding markets um, and the real ter- like shorter term funding funding markets. Um, so what I'm watching for is credit conditions, because, again, you know, a lot of these these financial crises that we've had in the past. Yes, the catalyst that got us there was certainly not anything to to, to, to laugh about. Um, but at the same time, the severity of those crises oftentimes happen because there's a chain reaction. And eventually when credit markets, you know, tighten or, or worst case freeze up, I mean, you can literally watch the global economy come almost to a screeching halt. And right now at a time when, you know, demand is obviously in in, in, in question, uh, to say the least, it's really, really a, a time in which, you know, the market needs credit conditions and financial conditions to remain loose and for, you know, small, medium-sized businesses to be able to have access to capital, to be able to kind of weather this hopefully potential short-term storm because it's it, it's going to hit, you know, bottom lines. It's going to hit revenues. It's going to hit profitability. It's going to hit cash flow and it's going to affect the way in which, um, you know, an already kind of debt-driven economy um, is able to service those debts, right, on, on a multiple different levels. So long story short, what I'm looking for is credit conditions, because if those if you see credit spreads start to widen and you see lending standards really start to uh, to tighten up and, and even potentially credit markets freezing, that's when you get a really kind of doomsday scenario. And I think, you know, you'd be in for a lot more pain here uh, in markets going forward. All right, Kevin, uh, crazy times. Thank you so much for uh, for spending some time with us today. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. So a huge amount to digest from Kevin there. I think one of the reflections that I have is that this is really perhaps the first time that Bitcoin and crypto more broadly have been on display as a macro industry, as a macro asset that is impacted by and interacts with the larger movements of traditional markets. What that means in the short term is basically by definition impossible to tell. We don't have historical precedent, which means we're on uncharted territories. Uncharted territories can be really, really scary, and uh, everyone needs to do whatever they need to do to stay safe first and foremost. But uncharted territories can also be very valuable and very lucrative. So here's hoping that the markets don't go into total freefall, that stocks don't fall off a cliff, that credit doesn't contract everywhere, and that we don't plunge into a global recession or even depression. For my part, I'm going to try to keep breaking down everything going on. I'm going to bring a lot of different perspectives throughout the week onto the show to talk about all these issues. So 
Uh, hopefully this is helpful. Hopefully this brings a little bit more of a sense of at least understanding to, to what's going on. But for now, stay safe, everybody. Peace.